All the drama surrounding family and exes and in-laws, a mushroom cook and her killer family lunch that left three dead. How likely is it for a packet of mushrooms you buy from the supermarket to be very poisonous? Are all of the most deadly poisons in the world natural or synthetic? The thoughts, views and opinions expressed in this podcast are my own. They do not reflect the values of my employers. Welcome back to the Crossover Connections with Jack Wayne podcast. My name is Jack. I'm a scientist, college professor and microbiologist. On this platform, we talk about science, technology, productivity and how this informs the jobs of the future. Today's episode is revolving around a very hot headline here in Australia, potential murder, intrigue and molecular poisons that come from your grocery store. I'm of course talking about the mushroom cook and her potential killer family lunch that left three dead. This is still an ongoing investigation. So the last thing I want to do is cast aspersions on potential suspects and give my completely uninformed hot takes. I want to really dissect this headline from the scientific perspective. The reason this story is so intriguing is that it involves family, it involves in-laws, family meals, poisoning, hospitalization. That is all a great cocktail for intrigue. And at the heart of it is the humble mushroom. If you haven't heard of the headline already, I'm going to very quickly recap it for you. A meal where four out of the five people around the table fell very ill. Three of them later dying with the fourth left fighting for his life. And the fifth remaining unscathed. Perhaps the person who prepared and cooked the meal for the other four guests being the one who was completely unscathed is quite suspicious. And on top of that, it is due to beef wellington which includes beef, yes, but also mushroom as a key ingredient. This special meal of beef wellington with lots of mushrooms in her home in Leongatha, a rural town in our state of Victoria here in Australia, pretty tight-knit family. And these were elderly people in their late 60s and 70s. All of them felt violently ill later that night from suspected mushroom poisoning. Three out of the four died days later and one of them is still hanging on to life. The person who cooked the meal is someone named Erin Patterson. All the drama surrounding family and exes and in-laws they are at the center at the heart of this melodrama and a reason that this isn't more of a scientific story it's much of a murder mystery story for better or worse this is now the homicide investigation and indeed the cook miss patterson is a suspect in the killings because she prepared the beef wellington with lots of those mushrooms erin has proclaimed herself to be an experienced wild mushroom forager just how experienced we'll get into in a second because my contention is that no one can actually be that experienced at all and she used dried fungi that she'd purchased months earlier from an Asian grocery store and a fresh butter variety bought very recently from a local supermarket. There was a food dehydrator that was involved in preparing the mushrooms at some stage of the process that was dumped in a nearby place that she lied to investigators about. So that is a little bit fishy. And for some reason, the children didn't eat any of the offending mushrooms from the pie. The children basically said or claimed they weren't a fan of mushrooms. All of them were removed and the children didn't get sick at all. So that adds layers onto the suspicion. On top of that, Erin couldn't remember where she bought these mushrooms from and she claimed to buy them from an Asian grocery store and a local supermarket. I don't really know how you could not remember which supermarkets you visit or how many supermarkets you really need to visit regularly to forget which ones you bought them from exactly. There are only two or three Asian grocery stores in my immediate vicinity and she couldn't remember exactly where she bought them, which is again a bit of a red flag. They were sitting in her cupboard for some time she rehydrated them, put them in a dish, and this is the source of the poisoning. If the contention is the mushrooms were at the heart of this potential murder, how did they become poisonous to begin with? 
how likely is it for a packet of mushrooms you buy from the supermarket to be very poisonous and how experienced do you have to be as a wild mushroom forager to be able to tell apart a normal mushroom from a potentially poisonous mushroom. The most likely source of the poison is indeed from mushrooms, but specifically a type of mushroom called the death cap mushroom. It is very commonly found in the areas of Melbourne and Victoria, where this case was outlined. The scientific name is Amanita phylloides. It is responsible for 90% of mushroom-related deaths globally, and it can be very easily confused for edible mushroom varieties, such as the field mushroom or the straw mushroom. It's upright, it's very bright, it's white, it's eye-catching, and therefore it's very easily seen as a key mushroom target for your amazing food. And people who think they know better than the experts take this home and start cooking with them and, and get poisoned. What is the effect of eating this mushroom? And does it align with what we saw in the case? Death cut mushrooms contain three different classes of toxins, the most toxic of which is a toxin known as alpha Amanitin. Alpha amanitin inhibits an enzyme, and this is getting into the weeds of biochemistry, which I really love, but I know a lot of people who don't know much about science aren't into. It is inhibiting enzyme referred to as RNA polymerase. It makes small bits of RNA into bigger molecules of RNA, and RNA is so crucial to all of the genetic functions in all of our cells that if you disrupt this enzyme, it's disrupting a very core function that would ultimately kill these cells or stop them from functioning. There would be a little bit of a lag. Once you eat the death cat, people are often asymptomatic for several hours it is because you have lots of different cells all of which have a version of this RNA polymerase 2 enzyme and it can operate for a certain amount of time but once the poison sets in the number of cells that have their functions disrupted starts to expand and that lag period catches up with you you start having the symptoms nausea diarrhea gastrointestinal upset around 6 to 12 hours post ingestion alpha amanitin it goes through the liver it passes through the lining of your gut and it really targets the receptors present in liver cells and it shuts down liver and really has this cascading effect of poison throughout the whole body. This is the molecular mechanism of the alpha amanitin toxin present within death cat mushrooms as it relates to toxicity and antidotes for the toxin. Not that many exist. It really still is something that we can't treat very effectively, even if we know the cause, if we know the root cause of the poison, that it is death cat mushrooms, it is alpha manitin. This binding affinity between receptors and the toxin is so tight, especially in the liver, that it's very hard to dislodge it from its receptor and therefore the effect it has on cells is very difficult to slow down with something like an antidote. Antidotes to alpha manitin are mostly not very good at all because the binding of amatoxin to its target is, for the most part, irreversible. It's very hard to get around it. There is some promising new research from some scientists that are collaborating in China and I believe in Australia as well. It has been published in Nature Communications, one of the most prolific science journals across the globe. Certainly in our sector, it's one of the biggest journals. And it is a drug that already has FDA approval, Federal Drug Administration approval in the USA. It is a drug known as ICG. And ICG is actually something that is used for a different purpose altogether. It is actually a dye that people have been using to help diagnose diseases because the dye binds to certain parts of cells more differentially. You can light up the disease a little easier to visualize, but it's not viewed as some kind of treatment. It's just viewed as a diagnostic dye that makes different things look different colors. And when they did this testing in mice, they gave the mice after they've been poisoned with amatoxin, alpha manatoxin, they gave ICG and the drug had a protective effect and improved the rate of survival, not 100%, about 20 to 50%. So it's an encouraging sign, but really 
in the cases of these patients in the very famous murder mystery that we're all experiencing globally at the moment with the mushroom poisoning, you have to first of all diagnose that it is mushroom poisoning very quickly within say three to four hours and hopefully administer an antidote and for it to bolster the survival rate and also this has only been tested in mice trialing this in humans is still something that's not clear about its survivability and its efficacy for people working in emergency rooms this may be a viable option in the future especially if you know that there's been some kind of local outbreak of mushrooms or a bad batch of mushrooms where these death caps have snuck in this event of death cap mushroom poisoning is not unique to this family. Death cap mushrooms can be found in the wild all the time. And the question I posed earlier, can you really be an experienced wild mushroom forager and go into the bushes and save a money dollars for your cost of living? Because everything's very expensive at the grocery store and look for these mushrooms yourself. It is definitely not worth the risk. No one, really even the most experienced people who work on fungi full time, have that ability to 100% of the time discern a normal mushroom that's very harmless and delicious from the really poisonous, dangerous mushrooms that are out there in the wild. The Victorian state government has a public service announcement and a full fact sheet around how prolific poisonous mushrooms can be found growing around Victoria, especially during the autumn months. And they've got a specific type of warning, a specific dot point for the death cap mushroom. Amanita phylloides may result in deaths. And this is the main takeaway point. Unless you are an expert, do not pick and consume wild mushrooms in Victoria. I'm going to extend that out to say, no matter where you are in the world, do not go out there and pick wild mushrooms to consume. There is no home test that can help you tell the difference between edible and poisonous mushrooms. You almost need a lab test to confirm it. But that point, maybe it's not so appetizing. And the cost of running a lab test is way more than just paying the tax of going to the supermarket and paying for their rather inflated prices. And if you suspect you have taken and ingested some poisonous mushrooms, or your child may have eaten or ingested some poisonous mushrooms, you need to talk to any of the poison hotlines in your country in Victoria. It's 131126. And mushroom poisoning is such a frequent presence in the global health consciousness that has been quite inspirational for many Hollywood Hollywood screenwriters, which are on strike at the moment due to the impending AI onto their workforce. We talked about this in the last episode, link uh, over here. And one of my favorite shows of all time is Elementary, which is a US take on Sherlock, Sherlock Holmes. And in season four, episode 13, there was a study in Charlotte. They really focused in on a mushroom poisoning, the death cap mushroom as the mechanism through which this culprit set up an ingenious plot to kill a jaded lover, an ex-lover, very similar to, I guess, the murder mystery, the alleged murder mystery we're seeing playing out right now in Victoria. I want to segue into a segment called The Connect where we revisit viewer comments on previous episodes to explore the connectivity between people's thoughts and how our episodes are faring. And this is a series of comments throughout a number of videos that we're going to try and summarize thematically. And again, this is not a dig on any of the people leaving these comments. Thank you for engaging with my content. I really need as many comments and as much feedback as I can get that will allow me to make a more informative and more entertaining podcast for all of you. So this comes courtesy of a user, Amala Adula, who says nothing on earth is better than natural. 
nothing. There's a number of replies to this, so clearly there was resonance. Some people replied to it to say, if only everyone understood this, but people are just too stupid. In this case, I believe they're referencing people are too stupid to realize natural is always best. And another follow-up comment is around the lab-grown meat episode where we talked about culturing lab meat. It's very important to point out that genetic engineering is not involved in making these lab-grown meats or consumers would opt out because genetic engineering is not natural. It's synthetic. It is very evil. It is unnatural. This is not a unique sentiment. It's coming up again and again thematically from people engaging with my podcast. This is a very common sentiment in the general public as well. Is natural really always best? Is natural always better than synthetic? Especially if we're thinking about our health. And I guess the first articles we talked about today kind of is the first counter to that point. All of these mushrooms that are causing these very widely circulated deaths from eating these death cap mushrooms, they're as natural as can be. There's nothing synthetic about them. They're found in the wild. There's literally been no human intervention and that's been part of the problem. If there had been human intervention, then those poisonous mushrooms would have been filtered out before they could make it way into a beef Wellington pie. So in this case, natural was actually very detrimental to the health of the people who ingested it. But if we look at poisons, what are the five most poisonous things on the planet and are they natural or are they synthetic? This is an article from The Conversation which talks about the world's five deadliest poisons and we do have to qualify how we measure deadliness in poisons and there is this concept in pharmacology and microbiology referred to as LD50 or lethal dose 50. This is a bit of a morbid term but it's referring to a group of test subjects whether they be test animals or test humans. How much of an agent do you need to give to kill Again, I apologize, this is pretty fatalistic and morbid. Kill 50% of the subjects in that test group. If the poison is to be really, really potent and very poisonous, the LD50 to be very low because that means you need a tiny amount of the dosage to kill quite a large number of subjects and people. The most deadly poisons have the lowest lethal dose 50. LD50 numbers, you need the least amount of these poisons to cause the most amount of harm. Sodium cyanide, hopefully people recognize cyanide is a very deadly poison as a toxicity of six milligrams per kilogram, whereas another poison, tetradoxin, has 300 micrograms per kilogram. So micrograms are much smaller, a thousand times smaller than milligrams. So you need far less of tetradoxin to cause very deadly outcomes than something like cyanide. So funnily enough, cyanide is actually not the most poisonous thing in the world by a long shot. The number five most deadly poison is ricin. A very old school example of this is the Bulgarian dissident Georgi Markov, who was exiled in London, and he was very famously on Waterloo Bridge when he felt a little ping on the back of his leg, and he saw a person wielding an umbrella, a very famous umbrella assassin, and there was a platinum iridium alloy in Markov's thigh, and it had been drilled out to ingest a tiny little bit of ricin in that pellet, presumably fired from that umbrella gun, it's very James Bond-esque, all the way back in 78, lodged itself in Georgi Markov, and he was taken to hospital and died three days later. Ricin more recently is made famous by the ricin cigarette in Breaking Bad. All you Breaking Bad fans should know what I'm talking about, the ricin cigarette that was either Walter Jesse's secret weapon against one of the many potential foes and enemies on their path towards becoming the ultimate meth lord. Ricin has an LD50 of 1 to 20 milligrams per kilogram. You need far less of it. That's really scary. 1 to 20 milligrams is already pretty low. Far less if it's injected or inhaled. And ricin is natural. It's obtained from beans of the castor oil plant and it's cultivated to extract the oil. It is 
completely natural, yet it is very deadly. The number four most deadly poison is a nerve agent called VX, and it is the only synthetic compound out of this top five of most deadly poisons in the world. VX interferes with the transmission of nerve messages between cells, and this pretty much interferes with that acetylcholine transmission between nerves. These are nerve agents that prevent the nerve synapses from communicating to each other, and muscle contractions go out of control. You're not able to use the muscles in your lungs, around the lungs to help you breathe, and you die from asphyxiation. VX was very well known in the movie The Rock, Sean Connery, Nicolas Cage, an absolute classic. Its LD50 is three micrograms per kilogram really, really tiny. Number three most deadly poison in the world is batrachotoxin, something that is completely natural. Again, it comes from the skins of tiny frogs. These venented blowpipes of the South American Indians, the classic stereotypical trope, which I don't believe is necessarily true in this day, they would collect the frogs and sweat out their poison from their skin over a fire before distilling it onto their darts. And the LD50 of this particular batrachotoxin, again, completely natural from a frog, is two micrograms per kilogram. It is super, super deadly. A tiny little bit of it will kill you. And the way it works is that it interferes with sodium ion channels again in muscles and nerves, and it's jamming them so that they can't close. And this constant migration of ions leads to a lot of different effects and a little lot of different misfiring and muscle contractions. But really, heart failure is the most obvious and immediate consequence that will kill you. The number two most deadly poison in the world, mitotoxin, which again is completely natural, found in the environment naturally. This is associated with algal blooms in the sea, and mitotoxin is the most lethal of these substances found in these environments. It has an LD50, an order of magnitude less than the previous toxin, batrachotoxin. It is a cardiotoxin. It increases the flow of calcium ions through the cardiac muscle membrane, and it causes heart failure as well. What is number one on the list of most deadly poisons in the world? It is something you have very much heard of, but line of toxin or it's affectionately referred to as Botox. It is very, very lethal. It is the most toxic substance known to man. And it is, again, completely natural. Its LD50 is one nanogram. So a nanogram is a thousand times smaller than a microgram. And a microgram is a thousand times smaller than a milligram, which is a thousand times smaller than a gram. So a nanogram per kilogram is by far the most poisonous thing we can think of. And we found to date, and again, it's completely natural, found an anaerobic bacteria that exists in the world, exists in the environment. This is completely natural. Tiny little bit of it would be completely fatal. Botulinum toxin is not just Botox. Botox is a different version of it. Cosmetic Botox has a very, very small amount of this toxin and it will interfere with the muscle contractions and it will kind of smooth out the muscle because if the muscle can't contract, that the wrinkles around the skin that the muscle is attached to won't be able to furrow and kind of crinkle and therefore you won't get those folds in your skin and you'll give the illusion of looking a little bit younger for a little bit longer. But if you just elevate it beyond just a little bit more to that very toxic level of nanograms per kilogram, tiny LD50, Botox will kill you. It's the most deadly substance known to man. And it is, again, completely natural. So the top five most deadly poisons that we know of, four of them are completely natural. So what does that say about natural versus synthetic? 
Yes, obviously natural can be better if it fills a few criteria, but if we're talking about pure harm, pure poison, pure deadliness, nature is home to some of the most deadly and most poisonous things we've ever found. Top four out of top five is all natural. So I don't think we can make the claim that na nature or natural things are always consistently the best choice. Everyone is convinced that everything natural is healthy for us than synthetic products and indeed there are chemicals that modern chemistry has derived very famously DDT that has very bad effects on the environment the most toxic chemicals to humans are completely natural and they're found in our environment all around us the answer isn't synthetic is always better that's not the answer either it's gray and case by case which is a very unexciting interpretation of a rather clickbaity title in fact this might be one of the most clickbaity videos I've ever made on the channel and that's saying something this type of debate really boils down to it depends and it's not very exciting it's a little bit fence sitting and this article dives to three main assumptions that people have when they think about the natural versus synthetic debate one synthetic chemicals are more toxic than natural chemicals two organically grown food is better for you because it's all natural and three synthetic copies of natural chemicals are not as good for you. I do think that if you are using a synthetic version of a chemical rather than a naturally found chemical, you do need to advertise that. I think transparency is very important, but that's only because people are very, very passionate about this debate whether they should be or not is the question I'm trying to dive at but regardless I think you should have to disclose and hopefully we can all lower the temperature around the value of synthetic and the value of natural in any different context synthetic chemicals are not really more toxic by default than natural chemicals of course there are some synthetically derived chemicals that are very toxic but we talked about Botox already it is the most toxic poison known to man and is completely natural so really there is very little correlation between toxicity and being found in nature or being synthetically made misconception to organically grown food is better for you because it's all natural we may be able to make the argument that kind of organic farming is more humane to the animals and it is more sustainable but if it is not as efficient and you need to use more water to keep the crops alive because the fertilizer you're using is natural and the yield on that fertilizer it is, isn't as good then that's not a great argument for the environment overall because you need to use more resources to compensate for the fact that you're going all natural or organic but really organic farming purely from a yield level purely from uh, environmental impact level synthetic fertilizers synthetic pesticides can be just as effective if not more effective than the organic pesticides and the organic processes that are working maybe quite inefficiently and leading to more damage to the environment over time the third misconception this article points out is that synthetic copies of natural chemicals are not as good for you and the example they use here is vitamin c there is a synthetic version environment C that you can buy which can be manufactured much more quickly with greater yield so that it is cheaper to make and again it has lower impact on the environment and as far as we can tell through all the tests it tastes the same it smells the same it functions the same or the same effect as far as we can measure and test in all of these trials so really there's no evidence that synthetic copies of natural chemicals are not as good for you we don't have any evidence for that it doesn't mean that they're better for you necessarily but pretty much a, a neutral, a tie. 
the last article we'll talk about today is one from the BBC, which dives into the commercial leanings that companies will leverage to win this debate in your pocketbook and to get you to pay for products or pay more for products because they are natural rather than synthetic. First of all, it may not be that natural at all. They could be using synthetic versions of those chemicals and claiming that it's natural and charging a premium, thinking that it will attract a more interested in more exclusive clientele but we can be fooled on this right and i think it's a lot of good intentions in that debate thinking maybe being natural is less destructive for the environment we are organisms that should be living more closely to nature rather than in these urbanized environments with pollution so all very well intentioned but we're looking for protecting our health and we're looking for protecting the environment we've already talked about the health part of it protecting your health won't really benefit from purely interacting with natural things because there are many very dangerous compounds that are completely natural and the second part is will natural things automatically be better for the environment this is an example in the article from the bbc indian sandalwood it is a fragrance used in beauty products each sandalwood tree takes 30 years to reach full maturity before its essential oil can be harvested and over harvesting puts this plant at risk of extinction and what they've done is they've recreated this lab this biotech company emeris using a more affordable and bioidentical sandalwood molecule from sugarcane using fermentation technology so they've very smartly leveraged biotechnology to reproduce this molecule in a more sustainable way without having to grow these trees and cut them down in an unsustainable way so this is an example where synthetics actually is more efficient and better than the natural alternative and the fact that we can do these processes and we can do them in a more streamlined way that then mitigates the environmental damage it may do that should be something that we're championing as well i believe that we as the consumer need to be a bit more savvy and not think natural is the buzzword that would mean everything is higher quality we need to be looking and reading a little bit more into exactly which categories of goods maybe a synthetic version of it has its benefits and i hope the companies are smart enough to incorporate that into their marketing as well hopefully we'll get there one day i don't think we're there yet next episode it will be our season finale of season two of the crossover connections podcast really revolving around the mandate that many employers are having that you can no longer work from home. I'm Jack Wayne. Thank you for listening and watching. Hope to connect you again next time around.